song in my ear. You have it too. Corinthians chapter 6, and we will get there eventually. Okay, so in order to understand the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we've really got to do some background work, because the things that Paul says in this part of Scripture are absolutely stunning, and we've gotten so used to it. We've become so accustomed to Pauline theology that we, I don't think, give sufficient weight to the fact that something cataclysmic has happened to Paul. Something has happened that has changed him dramatically. Now, here at GCA, we do talk a lot about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And let's be very clear about what those covenants are. The Old Covenant is the covenant that God made through Moses with Israel at Mount Sinai. The words of the Ten Commandments, I've said this over and over again. The reason that I keep repeating it is because so many people out on the Internet don't seem to get this. They think that the Ten Commandments are still incumbent on the church and that we have to live up to those commandments in order to please God, that they become the basis of our salvation. The Ten Commandments are referred to in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy, I do believe, but they are referred to as the words of the covenant. And so God is forming a covenant with Israel. Only Israel is there at Mount Sinai. Only Israel is part of this covenant. Those words are put in stone, and those stone tables, those stone tablets, are referred to as the tables of the covenant. So you've got the words of the covenant put on the tables of the covenant, put into a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. covenant. How obvious is this? And so it's very clear that the Israelites understood that God was forming a covenant with them. And so Moses said when he came down with the Ten Commandments in stone 
And when he had these 613 ordinances directly from God, he said to all of Israel, these are the words of the covenant. And they all said, we'll do it. We agree. We form a covenant with God. So that covenant was formed specifically at Mount Sinai between God and Israel. And then the New Testament comes along and identifies that covenant as the Old Covenant. Because God, in dealing with Israel, realized, I think he always knew, obviously, but he knew that he could not save Israel via the Sinai Covenant because it was a conditional covenant made between God and men. These were not Holy Spirit-infused men. This was a national group of people who agreed to keep God's rules. And then they didn't keep the rules. Well, part of the conditions of the covenant were, if you keep this covenant, I'll keep you safe. I'll keep you safe from wild, anime, from wild animals. That was animals and enemies put together. Wild animals. I will keep you safe from wild animals. I will keep you safe from your enemies. I will give you a land of milk and honey. I'll give you plenty of food. I'll give you rain for your harvest. I'm going to protect you, and, and you're going to be safe, and you're going to be secure in your land. But if you do not keep my law, then I'm going to punish you, and I'm going to drive you out of your land, and I'm going to make sure that the wild animals do come up in your land. And I'm going to bring you droughts and I'm going to hold back the rain. So I'm going to punish you if you do not do the things that are set out in this covenant. So it was a completely conditional covenant that because the Israelites broke, God could not turn to that covenant to save Israel because they broke it. So through Isaiah, God started talking about a new covenant, and then Jeremiah comes along and starts laying out the conditions of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, he says very specifically, this is the covenant that I made with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, I brought them here, I made a covenant, which covenant they broke, and that's the reason for a new covenant covenant. And so the new covenant is formed in the blood of Christ. The old covenant was formed on the blood of goats and the blood of bulls and dead birds and people trying to keep the rules. And, and the writer of Hebrews is very specific to say that covenant not only did not save, it could not save because the blood of goats and bulls was never sufficient to pay for human beings. Erring humans who were in sin against God could bring a river of animals as they did. The constant flow of blood out of the temple to try to appease the wrath of God was not sufficient. The proof that the writer of Hebrews gives is if it had ever accomplished an end to man's sin and brought about actual salvation, if it had ever accomplished that, then they would have quit doing it. They would have said there that accomplished the forgiveness of sin, but because it could not accomplish the forgiveness of sin, they had to keep doing it, keep doing it year by year, steady flow of blood, constant killing of animals, constantly appeasing God, constantly keeping the rules, and it never was sufficient. The blood of Christ is spoken of as fully sufficient blood. When Christ died and spilled his blood and established the New Testament, the new covenant, you may remember that on the night that he took the Lord's Supper with his apostles, he said with great longing, I've longed to keep this Passover with you. And for 1,400 years, they had been keeping the Passover. And every year when they took it, they remembered their deliverance from Egypt. So Jesus changed their focus and said, from now on, when you do this, remember me. Don't remember that, because that was a deliverance physically from Egypt, which never accomplished the forgiveness of sin. Instead, remember what I'm doing. He picked up the cup that had always been a cup of the remembrance of the deliverance from Egypt, and he said, take this, every one of you drink it, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And so 
he identified his own blood as the blood of the new covenant. And so the same way that blood of animals in the Old Testament used to be sprinkled on the people and on the furniture and on the temples, and and that blood was used to sanctify, to separate those items for God's exclusive use, Jesus then used his own blood, which is spoken of as being sprinkled on his people in order to sanctify them for God's exclusive use. You got all that? You still up with me? Because this is important. This is all background to what Paul's about to say. Now, because the new covenant is in effect, Paul could say that the old covenant, the covenant of law, he could speak of it as the law which was against us. And so many people in religious circles still speak of the law as if it's part of the sanctifying process that gets us to God. That God is still up there keeping track of how you follow the rules of the law. But that's wrong. Paul is very clear about that. The ordinances and the law were against us. Paul's very clear in the book of Romans to say, I didn't know I was a sinner. I didn't know that I coveted until the law said, thou shall not covet. Then I realized how wrong I was. And he said, the law is good. The law is fine. The law is perfect. The problem is me. The problem is I can't do the law. So all the law can do is condemn me. He was so sure that all the law could do was condemn him that he ended up writing, crying out, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And his answer, of course, was, I thank God in Christ Jesus. Only he can do it. He's the solution to my sin problem. I can't kill enough animals. I can't spill enough blood. I can't keep enough ordinances and rules for God to ever look on me and say, good job, your own performance has saved you. All he can do is look at me by the perfect righteous standard and say, you have fallen short. And if I were to judge you on the basis of your performance of that law, I must condemn you, which is why Paul would cry out that way. So all the law can do is hurt you. All the law can do is condemn you. One thing the law cannot do is stoop down to help you. All the law can say is you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Oh, and that's wrong. And you broke the law again, and you're going to be condemned. So Christ comes along with his perfect blood. He spills his perfect blood for us and then institutes the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith. And he sees the law as utterly, completely fulfilled in Christ and even then done away with completely. He says that the law was nailed to Christ's cross And taken out of the way. So Paul is very, very clear about the old law being gone. Gone. Not partially gone. Not a tool you can use to add to your sanctification. Gone. Because all it can do is hurt you. All it can do is judge you. All it can do is condemn you. All Christ can do is save you. All Christ can do is sanctify you and justify you and bring you into the presence of his Father. And if Christ has done that for you, you don't need the law. The law is completely unnecessary. So Paul understood the fullness, the completeness of Christ's finished work. And because he understood that Christ fully did the work of expiating our sin, he could write that Christ is coming back again without regard to sin. Because the first time he came, he took care of our sin problem. Our problem was we could not stand in front of a righteous and holy God because we were sinners. And he fully did the work of a mediator, mediating between God and man so that men could be reconciled to their maker. And having fully accomplished that work, the writer of Hebrews says, Having done it, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
And that was something nobody could do under the old covenant. I've pointed out many, many times that if you look at the furniture that's in the, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and even in the temple in Jerusalem, you're going to find the candlestick and the table of showbread, and you're going to find an altar, and inside the Holy of Holies, there's going to be the, the Ark of the Covenant. You can look all the way around that tent, and the one thing you will not find is a chair. There's no stool. There's no chaise lounge. There's no place for the guys who are doing the work to rest. They just have to do the work. Just do the work. And the writer of Hebrews says when Christ finished his work, he sat down. Because it was done. Because he finished it. He fully accomplished paying the sin debt of all the people that his father gave to him. That's accomplished. And if that's true, if it is true that Christ has fully, sufficiently, radically, and entirely saved his people, then what can you possibly do to add to that? Well, nothing. And so we react to that. We react to that by praising him and by worshiping him and by thanking him and by recognizing that he has done everything and that he is the glorious savior and that we are the ones who are the saved. Okay, I said all that to say. Paul here is about to say, all things are lawful. Wait, hold on, hold on just a moment. Turn to Philippians 3 for a minute. Keep your finger right here. But turn to Philippians 3 for a second. Because we'll let Paul explain what he used to be like when he was under the law. Because he starts bragging a little bit. He starts talking about if anybody can have any confidence in their flesh, if anybody can take any credit for having done good, I certainly can. Because here's what I was like. Starting at uh, verse 4, although I, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I more. So even if you think you're pretty good, Paul argues, I was better. I was better. I, in fact, here's what I was like. First, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That put him in the Abrahamic covenant. And I was of the nation of Israel. So I was part of the people who were standing at Mount Sinai who had a covenant with God. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, that puts him in the southern kingdom. It makes him a member of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom. And I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As many sojourners, as many Hebrews, as many descendants of Abraham as there ever were, I was preeminent among them. In fact, I'm the one who even had a writ from the leaders within the temple to go and find all those people who had abandoned Moses in order to follow Christ, and I was actively seeing that they were tried and killed. That's what a Hebrew of the Hebrews I was. I was adamant for the law. As to the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. I wasn't just a, a person trying to do good. I wasn't just trying to keep the law. I got all the way to Pharisee. I was adamant about the law of God. And then he brags as to zeal, as to keeping the law. I was a persecutor of the church. That's how zealous for the law I was. As to the righteousness which comes by the law, I was blameless. You couldn't hold anything against me. I was perfect in the way that I kept my own self-righteousness. I figured God was really impressed with me. And then, of course, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, 
those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then this wonderful phrase, not that I have already obtained or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, studied at the feet of Gamaliel, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was very proud of his self-righteousness before the law. He was blameless, and he counted all of that as rubbish as nothing so that he could gain the surpassing glory of Christ. Now, as his theology is developed and he starts writing about the uselessness of the law, he goes all the way from, I'm really emphasizing this, aren't I? Am I building this up enough? Because I want you to see it. He goes all the way from before the law, blameless. And the law is full of don't touch. Don't eat. Don't do things. The law is full of restrictions. And Paul ends up saying here to the Corinthians, there's no law against me and everything is legal. What? <laughs> what? Where did you get this dramatic freedom? Where did you get this cataclysmic freedom that says... Nothing. There's nothing that can hurt or harm me. There's nothing that can do me any harm where the law is concerned. And why? Because the law is utterly, completely done away with. It's gone. It's nailed to the cross. It's taken out of the way. The rules that were against us don't count for us. Instead, we have freedom in Christ. That's what he wrote to the Philippians. That all that stuff I counted as gain is nothing compared to the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ and Christ is in you and by his Holy Spirit he is inhabiting you, he no longer has to say to you, go obey the rules of Sinai. He doesn't have to say that anymore because you have the governor on your behavior of the Spirit of God residing within you and now you are reacting to the fact that God has utterly saved you, that Christ has died for you and spilled your blood for you, and that there is nothing that is prohibited against you where the law is concerned. You got all that? Where's the hallelujah amen? You should be on your feet. You folks should be dancing around the room. I'm talking about real, genuine, radical freedom. I'm talking about the kind of freedom that the vast majority of religious people don't even know about. That's right. The vast majority of preachers in pulpits are still imposing some kind of law on people. And it may not even be the law of Moses. It can be their own law, their own rules. At this church, this is what we do. We always wear a tie and women always wear dresses and never pants and Get out, Betty. And people, <laughs> people have their own rules that they make up their own standards. And I have, again, often observed that the rules and standards that churches make up are usually the ones that the leaders of the church can actually do so that they can look right, so that they can look good in front of the people who can't do it, whatever that thing is. Because legalism runs rampant in the church. We're all legalists by heart, and people are drawn to legalism. It's very, very difficult when somebody stands up and just says, have faith in Christ, believe Christ, trust in Christ. That's actually a phenomenally difficult thing to do. But if I give you three rules, do this, this, and this, 
That's easy. You can do that. God will save you if you stand on one foot for five minutes and sing Kumbaya. Okay, I'll do that. People like rules. They treat them like an insurance policy. Just tell me what to do to get into heaven, and I'll do it. The Pharisees asked Jesus, what's the great command? They wanted to do something. He didn't even go to the Ten Commandments. He ended up going to the book of Deuteronomy and saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, strength. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What they realized immediately is they can't do that. They can do the ten. Give us the ten. Give us the big commandments. Give us some great command. What's the most important commandment of the ten? And we'll concentrate on that. He went straight to something they couldn't do. When they asked him, what is the work of God? Because they want to work. They want to do something. He said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he sent. They couldn't do that. If he had said, here's the work of God. Pick up that stone and carry it over there and drop it off and build a house. Or, well, they can do that. But believe on me? They can't do it. Sometimes people get upset with us because I do preach this salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And they say, well, that's too easy. You go easy on people. You tell people, just believe. Yeah, that's not easy. That's hard. Now, if you've got the Spirit of God inside you, He will guide you in the ways of righteousness where you trust implicitly and completely on Christ, but that's a gift of God. It's impossible for the natural man, the natural man who wants to do things, it's impossible for him to just have faith in Christ. That's all you got to do, have faith in Christ. They don't know how. They can't do it. They can't whip it up. Of themselves, it is a gift of God to have faith in Christ. That's certainly what Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, by grace you save through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, refers to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. So Christ is the one who brings about faith. Christ is the one who continues faith. And Christ is satisfied in the faith that he has produced in us. So it's still all him. The natural man can't do something as quote unquote easy as just believe Christ. If you can, if you're trusting him, that when the day comes that this life is over for you and you have to step out into eternity, that he's going to meet you there and that he's going to provide for you an entrance into his father's heaven where you're going to be eternally in the place of joy and no weeping and no sickness and no death. If you trust him that he's got that, that he's going to take care of it, well, then that's a gift of God given to you. That's not something that mankind did. So, again, back to the point. Paul went from, as touching the law, blameless. All the way to, there is no law against me. Because he saw the dramatic, dramatic difference between the old covenant and he lived it. He bragged about it. I lived by the law. I was a Pharisee, Hebrew of the Hebrews. I did that. And I found out that it was worthless. And yet, I say again, there are people today, this morning, preaching from pulpits in Christian churches telling people that they have to follow the very law that Paul saw as useless. And I'm here to tell you, no, you don't. What you have to have is faith in Christ, and he will change your behavior. The Ten Commandments written in stone, a covenant you weren't even part of in the first place, can't help you. So give up your legalism and trust that Christ has got it covered. He has fully and sufficiently covered your sin debt. Whatever your sin is, he has taken care of that with God. And therefore, he can say what we're going to read in chapter 6, verse 12. That was all introduction. That was. 
That was the gospel. That's the good news. And it, it frustrates me that there are people who got up this morning, put on a coat and tie, women did their hair and got all dressed up and went to church somewhere. And they sat there and listened to some man condemn them and bellow down at them about how wrong they were for something they did. That frustrates me so much. Should I talk about this? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I heard a sermon this week from a fella in Murfreesboro who was teaching on the Lord's Prayer. And because he's so Arminian, I hope you all know what I mean by that, because he sees everything from the point of view of man's capability rather than God's grace. He was teaching on the Lord's Prayer, and it was the most Arminian version I've ever heard of it. In fact, to give you an example, when he talked about our Father who art in heaven, rather than see that as a glorification of God, the one who is in heaven, he emphasized he's ours. We choose him. We pick him. We make him God. We're the ones who decide that he's going to be our God and then he chooses to save us in response. So rather than Jesus' very purpose, which was glorify the God of heaven, he turned it into glorify the man who chooses that God and makes him glorious. It was outrageous. But he's got a huge church and there are people getting dressed up and going in there and listening to this guy tell them that they're great they're wonderful they're fine and oh yeah get busy do more good stuff follow the law as best you can and maybe God will save you on the basis of your righteousness that's wrong you have no personal righteousness Jesus saves that's gospel Amen. yes sir I take it you'd object to the tithing police? I object utterly and completely to the tithing police. Put you in a room with one door and they audit you once per year? Yeah, because didn't we just read a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Okay, so let's talk about tithing for a moment. Where do you find tithing? In the New Covenant? No! It's nowhere in the New Covenant. In fact, Paul says the diametric opposite of tithing when he says every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. No, that's not tithing. Tithing says 10 and 10 and 10. A real tithe is about 30%. And most people are satisfied with 10%, so they think they're keeping the law and they're not even keeping the law because they're not doing their 30%. But when Paul comes along and tells the church, of Gentiles who don't have a history of tithing. So the only way they would tithe would be if Paul taught them tithing. Nowhere in all Paul's letters do you find him teaching tithing. Instead, he teaches grace giving. Instead, he teaches every man according to what he purposes in his heart. Let him give. So, no, I do not believe that the new covenant blood-bought church ought to be under a tax that was imposed on Israel for the support of the Levites. Because we don't have any Levites anymore. Does that seem obvious enough? I'm pretty adamant about this stuff. But I want you to really get it. Because if you ever really do get it, and I'm, I'm with all of you, it's tough. We are legalists by heart. But... Man, in those moments when you get it, it's so good. It's so freeing. And it, it makes you want to stop everything you're doing and just praise God. Just thank him over and over and over for the fact that he has done everything for somebody like Todd. I just picked you out because you were sitting there. But, but somebody like me, somebody like Dwight, somebody like Leon. Any of us, we know our sin. Our sin is before us all the time. We know our guilt. We know what we've done. And we, we want naturally, because we've done that, to do something else to make up for it. And we can't. And he did. And it's done. 
I could stop now, and this was the best message you've, you, you could have found this morning. But we're going to go on into the text. All things are lawful for me. I said all of that to say that phrase. All things are lawful for me. How can he say that? Because there's no law against him. There is no law of Moses anymore that is encumbering his behavior, that is making him guilty, that is constantly battering him to not be good enough, to work harder, to try to please God. There's none of that. It's all gone, and so he has such complete freedom that he says all things are, the word is allowable. All things are allowable for me. Okay, now in Corinth, they were a very wicked city. Do you remember the introduction to the book of Corinth that we did a few months ago? I talked to you about the fact that, that the city was so wicked, so pervasively wicked, that if you called somebody a Corinthian, it was a bad name. Prostitutes were known as Corinthian girls. I mean, it was just widely known that the city of Corinth was a city of all kinds of debauchery. And all kind of sinfulness. Okay, so there was a phrase that apparently was popular among the Corinthians. Food is for the belly and belly for food. And that was the way that they would eat and eat and gorge themselves and plenty. And don't worry about whether or not anybody else gets any food. Food is for the belly and the belly is for food. And that then became the phrase, well, then sex is for the body and the body is for sex. And so Paul has to address this now with the Corinthians who have been allowing somebody to stay in their church that was having sex with their father's wife. They were not purifying the church. There was sexual immorality running rampant within the church and there was, as we're going to continue to see, there was this sort of gluttony within the church, especially because the people who had plenty weren't sharing with the ones who had none. Instead, they were satisfying, satiating themselves to the hurt of those who had nothing. So Paul has to address all of these things. So he has to start by saying, look, I'm not just giving you legal principles. I've already just gotten done saying, don't go to law with a brother. Instead, if you have a difference, take it into the church. Let the church, the least in the church, decide these principles. Aren't you smart enough to decide between one and another? Don't you have the mind of God, the mind of Christ? Can't you decide that? Okay, so he's still talking about things that are legal and things that are at law. And now he says, and there is nothing that is not permissible for me. I have complete freedom in Christ. But then he says, but not everything is good for me. Okay, this is a great principle. You have freedom in Christ. Christ has fully, completely solved your sin problem. So now you have radical freedom. I had a preacher tell me years ago, wrote to me in mostly capital letters. He wrote to me and said, you can't preach that kind of freedom that you preach. You have to put a little bit of law on people or they'll go crazy on you. And I wrote back and said, yeah, you're right. If they didn't have the Holy Spirit of God. But if I'm talking to people who have the Holy Spirit of God, I can give them true and genuine freedom in Christ because they do have the very power of God limiting their behavior. They are making wise decisions. They are judging well in the things that they allow and they disallow. So Paul says, even though everything is permissible to me, not everything is good for me. I had a birthday last Wednesday. My kids brought me home a chocolate cake that can only be described as instant diabetes. <laughs> they brought me home a chocolate cake with chocolate frosting, and then it had chocolate candy on top of it and chocolate structures. And there were little bars of chocolate along the side. And there were, I mean, this is a dangerous cake. <laughs> this is a cake I can use against my enemies. I mean, <laughs> so what did I do with it? I ate it. 
Oh, yeah, I ate it. Mm -hmm. Was it good for me? No. Did I have the freedom to eat it? Yes. Was it profitable to me? I got so sick. <laughs> My stomach hurt. I'm in and out of the bathroom. I was, it was just too much really rich cake. Too much really good frosting, but I couldn't stop. It tasted good. Doesn't it taste good, James? Yeah. Oh, man, it was good. It was, but it was, but it was not good for me. It was permissible, but it wasn't profitable. And so Paul takes that idea and brings that out to every aspect of life. He says, in life, things are permissible, like, for instance, eating. Now, this was a very big thing in Corinth, and it's going to come up again. Because among the Corinthians, they did worship a vast number of idols. And so the question became for Christians, well, can we eat the meat that is sold in the marketplace if the meat came from an animal that was sacrificed to an idol? Well, Paul's conclusion is going to be that an idol is nothing. And because it's nothing, don't ask any questions for conscience sake. If you're lucky enough to get a steak, eat it. And don't worry about it because it goes into your mouth, it goes through your body, it leaves out of the draft, and it's gone. So, so eat. Your body needs to eat. And if you're fortunate enough to find some good food, don't worry about whether or not it was sacrificed to idols. So this is, again, the kind of freedom that Paul had. He had that kind of freedom of conscience where he wasn't bothered by such things. So what you ate and how you ate was a very big issue in Corinth. And Paul's saying, look, everything's lawful. Not everything's profitable. Not everything is good for me. Not everything is going to improve my state of life or even health like the cake. But everything is allowable. And then he says it again a different way. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be mastered by anything. Okay, this is really important. Let me bring it down to brass tacks. Years ago, I dealt with a man who was a raging alcoholic. And he said to me, you're the one who says God is sovereign. And if he wants me not to be an alcoholic, he'll stop me. Of course, I pointed out to him that the way God sometimes stops people is by killing them. But his attitude was, well, I have freedom. Don't I have freedom? And I took him to this very passage because I said, you're a servant of the alcohol. You are enslaved by the alcohol. You're being mastered by the alcohol. I have dealt with 20-something years. I have dealt with a crack addict here locally. I've helped him several times to get sober, and he ends up back on the crack pipe. And I won't give him a lick of help when he's cracked out of his head. Because if he's talking, he's lying. But when he's trying to get well, when he's working on getting sober, when he's trying to do the right thing, and well, then I'll, I'll be all the help to him I can possibly be. But I have said to him time and time again, you're a slave to the pipe. You are a... You are mastered by crack. It is so addictive to your body that you can't escape it. It owns you. And you're supposed to belong to Christ. He's supposed to own you. But he doesn't because the crack owns you. Okay, that's what Paul's talking about here. Everything's legal. Nobody gets to say, hey, I've got freedom in Christ, so I'm a crack addict. Because they're mastered by that thing. And you can think of a great many things. I know many people who are absolutely enslaved to sugar. And I was one of them on my birthday. <laughs> I know people who are enslaved to the drugs they buy at the drugstore. Right, Jamie? Yeah. I know people who are enslaved by the relationship that they have with somebody else. So Paul says, all things are lawful to me, 
but not all things are profitable to me. All things are lawful to me, but I won't be mastered by anything. I belong to Christ. And so I will not allow anything to have mastery over me but him. So then he quotes the Corinthians, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And he agrees with that basic premise, but then he says, but God will do away with both of them. Your body's going into the ground. Food goes away in the draft, a phrase I used earlier. God is going to destroy both the stomach and the food, so you should never let the food have mastery over you. It's true, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And he uses the same phrase, he just replaces it with the words, the body is for the Lord. The body's not for food. The body's for the Lord and the Lord provides food. So again, he's putting God front and center. His Christology is completely Christocentric. Christ is going to be first and foremost in everything so that the body is not for immorality, that sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. Now, that being the case, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ That's that we're all one body idea. If we're all one body and the body belongs to Christ, then who are you to think that you own your body? It's Christ that owns your body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute, of a harlot? May it never be. Okay, you have to understand the context again historically. In Corinth, where there were all these idol temples, you also had what were known as temple prostitutes because they had constructed their worship in such a way, believing that sex is for the body and the body is for sex. They would actually use sex as part of the ways that they would honor these idols, these foreign gods. So now Paul is drawing a line in the sand and saying, clearly your body is not for immorality. It belongs to Christ. You are all part of Christ. And should you really take away some part of Christ and join it with a prostitute? Well, obviously the answer is not. He says, may it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her for He says, this goes all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's always been true. It always will be true. Let me get even more controversial, as if I haven't already. (laughs) Young people, the fact that you have an urge, the fact that you have desire, doesn't mean you should do it. Because you belong to Christ. The fact that you say, "But, but my boyfriend and I, we love each other so much. Well, good, I'm glad you love each other so much. But from God's perspective, this isn't Jim talking. From God's perspective, sex belongs within the confines of one man and one woman in a marriage bed. And in that arena, God has blessed it. God has said it's good. Paul wrote the marriage bed is not defiled. Have a good time with each other. But outside of marriage, any kind of fornication, any kind of, well, I have the urge and that justifies me doing it, Paul said, you can't do that because all the way back in Genesis it says they become one flesh. And why would you take the body of Christ, the body that belongs to Jesus himself, and join it as one flesh with a prostitute who an hour later is going to be one flesh with somebody else? Yeah, you made the right face there, Johnny. Johnny went, hmm. (laughs) But that's right. So that was the problem with the temple prostitutes in Corinth. And so Paul could argue for sexual purity 
on the basis of the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So rather than joining yourself to strange flesh, you should be joining yourself to the Lord in spirit. You belong to the Lord. In a moment, he's going to say, you've been bought with a price. You don't even own yourself. Now, I know, again, that's really radical sounding, especially in this day and age, especially in the society we live in, especially with the rampant immorality that runs around this planet, especially with the immorality that you can see all day, every day on the Internet or on the TV. And so we're so inundated with the constant immorality, we start to think the immorality is normal. And then worse yet, the church starts to think that the immorality is Christian. And Paul is driving a wedge between those ideas. And he is saying, if you are Christian, you belong to Christ. Flee immorality. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee immorality. And then here's his logical thinking, and it it makes complete sense. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. If you think about it, whatever that sin is, stealing or murder or hating somebody or whatever, it doesn't affect your personal body. It's just something that you're doing to other people. But the immoral man, the sexually immoral man, sins against his own body. Because he's joining his flesh to a prostitute. And um, Paul didn't say this, but in this day and age, disease runs rampant. And so that's something you're doing against your own body. He's going to argue from there that don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you? Okay, we got to talk about that concept for just a moment. Okay, among the Israelites, under the law, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the Holy place the holy of holies Uh, once a year on the day of atonement the cloud of God would come down and sit between the angel wings that was on top of the ark of the covenant and people were able to identify where God is God's there he's over there he's in the holy of holies he's between the angel wings he's there but he's not in here And then Jesus says to his apostles, you're going to know the spirit of truth because he's going to be with you and in you. Brand new concept. Now that spirit of God that used to reside in the temple in Jerusalem, now that spirit of God that was always in the holy of holies is inside you. And that's why there is no more holy of holies. That's why there's no holiest place in this church. We don't need that because we are the temple of God. God does reside within us. Okay, so now let's take the temple of God, the very place where God himself resides, and let's make it immoral. Instead of it being holy, instead of it being righteous and separate, let's go make it worldly. Well, that's what Paul argues. When you're engaged in that kind of worldliness, you are diminishing the very temple where the Holy Spirit of God resides. And if you can get a hold of that, if you can get that concept, if you can get that, that God is not only with you, but in you, and wherever you take him, he goes? Years ago, I went to a little town down by Shelbyville. Because my uh, friend Elder Ward was going to be preaching there that night. I didn't tell him I was coming. So I drove down there and surprised him. And it was a good surprise. So because it was tradition for any other preachers in the area to sit on the platform, which I don't really like doing. I, I don't like to sit on the platform. I'd rather sit out in the front where I can see your face. But for some reason, it's a position of honor for the preachers to sit behind the preacher where you can't see his face. I don't get that. But anyways, so the pastor of that church said, well, come sit on the platform. So I'm sitting on the platform while they're singing and everything. Elder Ward's sitting directly to my left. We're shoulder to shoulder. And he's kind of leaning on me, and he's saying a couple things to me. 
one of the uh, deacons is opening the worship service and he said, let's invite the Holy Spirit to come join us. Elder Ward leans over to me in my ear and says, he's already here. (laughs) He's already here. This is supposed to be the church of Jesus Christ. If that's true, the Holy Spirit's here. You don't need to invite him. And he's going wherever you go. And when you go, you take him. So why would you take him to a, a place of ill repute? Why would you take him and join your body to a harlot? Why would you take the Holy Spirit of God to some place where there's sexual immorality? Okay, let me expand on that concept for just a moment. Do you find yourself sitting at home when nobody can see you when you're by yourself checking out the porn on the internet or looking for something on one of the channels on TV that's going to sexually excite you? Well, then what are you inviting the Holy Spirit of God to do with you? Do you see? The the Holy Spirit of God becomes, I keep using the word the governor on our behavior, but he becomes the inspiration for our behavior. Because we know that he's always with us, and we would not want to degrade him by taking him places that are less than him. Okay, we need to wrap up here. There's food waiting for us. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Last verse. Because you have been bought with a price. God did not just say, well, I'll redeem that one, I'll redeem that one, I'll save that one. He then paid the price for your sin because there is a wage attached to sin. The wages of sin is death. If somebody sins, somebody has to die. And fortunately, all the way back in the Old Testament... God arranged it in such a way that rather than you having to die for your sin, an animal could die for your sin. And he could do it representatively for the whole of Israel. And the high priest would lay his hands on a goat. And the sinfulness of all Israel that he represented as their high priest was transferred to the goat. So God allowed for substitutionary atonement all the way back there. Isaiah writes about it. God would allow that the guilt of human beings could be placed on something else and that thing could die as a temporary expiation of sin. But as I said at the beginning, it never fully accomplished forgiveness of sin. All it did was temporarily appease God to hold back the wrath of God. And then Christ died and Christ spilled his blood and he once for all Hebrews 10, 14, I love it. He once for all perfected forever all those that he sanctified. All those that he set apart, he has made eternally perfect by his blood. And his blood was the price that was paid in a substitutionary way. And it was a huge price. It was such a high price that he was heard crying in the garden because he feared it was such a high price that he sweat like great drops of blood it was such a high price that he ended up saying if it were up to me let's not do this but not my will father but yours be done there was a high high price paid i love the phrase i heard from an old preacher years ago where he said salvation is free but it wasn't free for nothing It's free to you and me. We're saved by the the free gift of God. But that free gift came to us because somebody paid. The same old phrase that says there's no free lunch. There's always something you got to pay for it down the line. Well, that's the same deal with salvation. It's free for you, but somebody paid. And Christ paid for you. He bought you with the price of his own blood and his separation and agony with the Father taking on the curse that the law required and having taken on the curse and removing the law, you are now completely and utterly free in Christ. That's the very high price that was paid. So Paul could say, 
Now act like it. You've been paid for. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So don't be enslaved to anything. Don't be mastered by anything. Recognize that you belong utterly and completely to Christ. You have total and complete freedom in Christ, freedom from the law. All things are allowable and permissible because your sin debt has already been paid for you utterly and completely. And therefore, you should have no fear before God that there's some sin that's going to jump up and get you because he has completely taken care of your sin problem. And knowing that, knowing that he paid that high a price, you ought to act like the people of God who have the spirit of God inside them and recognize that God has chosen you, has saved you, has, has righteousified you, has justified you, has redeemed you, and he has glorified you in his own mind already. He has written down your name in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world. He is utterly and completely for you, so you ought to act like you love him for how much he loves you. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, now that is a gospel message. I can say to you, be good because the law says be good. Or be good because Tom and I think that from now on, everybody who comes to GCA ought to wear brown shoes. You know, whatever our rule is, I can heap laws on you. I can heap standards on you to try to conform your behavior to what I think is righteousness. That never works. Or I can tell you what Christ has done for you and the freedom you have in Christ and the Holy Spirit of God is a gift from Christ and that will conform your behavior and I would much rather leave it in God's hands than in mine. Right? right. Well, then we're done. How about a hearty amen? Amen. <laughs> and how about a woohoo? Yes. Well, actually, the word church is an English word. Ecclesia, the Greek word, means the outcalled, right? And that's translated as church. Now, the word church in the Celtic languages has a hard CH, so it's Kirk. And so you've heard of the little Kirk in the Dell? Okay, that's the little church in the Dell. Well, the word Kirk has its history in Kirke, which is a Greek word which refers to the kurios, which is the word translated Lord. Christ is the kurios, and the people who belong to the kurios are the kirke. And the church comes from the word kirke, and then migrated into the English with the soft ch, church. So even when you say church, you are saying those that belong to the Lord. But that English word is used to translate ecclesia, who are the outcalled. Now, in the Old Testament, there is a word assembly, a word that is in Hebrew that is translated the assembly of Israel. And when the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, was translated, they used the Greek word ekklesia to translate assembly. And as a consequence, there are people who say, well, the church then, which is the standard English translation of Ecclesia, the church is in the Old Testament. And Israel is the church, and the church is Israel. And they base that on the Greek translation of Ecclesia for the assembly of Israel. But if you understand the distinctions that church is an English word, Ecclesia is a Greek word, and that the assembly of Israel is a separate thing, then you won't get confused. Boy, that was a long answer to a short question. Did it, did it make sense? There was no short way to answer that. So, okay. So if you say church, you're saying those that belong to the Lord. I could have just said that and we'd be done. Was there another hand? Did I see anything else? Or are you all just really hungry? I figured, all right, let's pray and go get some food. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and the clarity of your word. And thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for the very, very high price that he paid to redeem his people 
who you gave to him. Thank you for gathering this church together. Thank you for the building that you've given us to meet in. Thank you for the food that you've provided for us this morning. Please bless that food to our bodies. Remove any impurities from it. Be with us in our fellowship. May the things that we do here in this church, in our homes, always be God-glorifying and aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is with us and in us. And may we always do things that are pleasing in your sight and where we fail you, we thank you for the completeness of Christ's work and our salvation. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' matchless and glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.